I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. The Word of God presents us with two extended descriptions of the worship of heaven, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. In both cases, these descriptions of heavenly worship were presented during a time of problems with earthly worship, revealing the fact that problems with our worship now are corrected when we bring our worship into proper relationship with the worship of heaven. This was certainly true for the nation of Israel. During Solomon's reign, and especially following the divided kingdom, God's people forsook the pure worship of God and began first to fall into syncretistic worship and eventually full-blown idolatry. Even noble kings in the southern kingdom, such as Uzziah, approached worship presumptuously and not according to God's explicit command by entering into the sanctuary, though he had no right to do so. It's no coincidence that the death of Uzziah is the very context for the prophet Isaiah's vision of heavenly worship in Isaiah chapter 6. In a way, this was God reminding Isaiah of the true reality upon which pure earthly worship was supposed to be based. God called Isaiah up into the heavenly temple itself, where he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Surrounding God were seraphim singing what has come to be called the Trisagian hymn, Thrice Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sight of God in all of his holiness and splendor caused Isaiah to recognize his own sin and unworthiness to draw near to the presence of God in his temple, what Uzziah should have known before entering the earthly temple as he did. And so, Isaiah confessed his sin before the Lord, saying, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yet God did not simply expel Isaiah from the temple due to his impurity. Rather, God provided means of atonement. One of the seraphim took a burning coal from the altar and placed it on Isaiah's lips, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now Isaiah was welcome in the presence of God by the means that God himself had provided. And so standing accepted in God's presence, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord giving him a message to which Isaiah willingly offered obedience, and God sent Isaiah forth with that message of both exhortation and promised blessing to the nation of Israel. Later, Isaiah's message to the people of Israel reveals that if they submit to God's exhortation and commit themselves to him, then, as chapter 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. God displays his acceptance of forgiven sinners through a celebratory feast. What's important to recognize is that this reality of heavenly worship contained a theological pattern that should have provided a corrective for the syncretistic and idolatrous worship of God's people. The pattern could be summarized this way. God first reveals himself and calls his people to worship. Then God's people acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. 
God provides atonement, God speaks his word, God's people respond with commitment, and then God hosts a celebratory feast. Isaiah's vision and message from God were supposed to correct the idolatrous worship of his people, but of course, the hard-hearted people did not listen, and so they never experienced the full blessing that God had promised to them if they had repented. In the book of Revelation, God granted the apostle John a similar glimpse into the temple of heaven. As with Isaiah during the reign of King Uzziah, it's no accident that this vision of heavenly worship came at a time when worship on earth was in chaos. Even a noble church like the one in Ephesus had lost its first love, and many Christians like those in Laodicea had become lukewarm. In John's vision, like Isaiah's vision, heavenly worship contains a theological pattern that should inform and correct earthly Christian worship. It begins with a call to worship. In chapter 4, verse 1, God says to John, Come up here, followed by a vision of God himself and the angels singing the Trisagian hymn again in verse 8, as well as hymns of praise for creation in verse 11. Then follows the presentation of the scroll that reveals the unworthiness of the people to open it at the beginning of chapter 5, except, of course, for the lamb who was slain, he who provided atonement and ransomed a people for God. The heavenly worshipers respond to this joyous reality with a doxology and a choral amen by the four living creatures, and then most of the rest of the book of Revelation foretells God's word being opened as he enacts his plan for humankind, as well as the responses of God's people in the form of praise and service. And then the book of Revelation climaxes with the great marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. This finally is the fulfillment of what Isaiah had promised for those who would listen to the word of the Lord. The heavenly temple will descend, and for the first time, God's ultimate intention for his people will come to full realization. God himself will be with his people as their God. And so, the theological pattern of worship in Revelation is the same as it has been since the beginning as revealed in Isaiah's vision. God reveals himself and calls his people to worship. God's people acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. God provides atonement. God speaks his word. God's people respond with commitment. And God hosts a celebratory feast. These two visions of worship in heaven establish some important foundational principles for our understanding of earthly worship. First, the similarities of heavenly worship between Isaiah's vision and John's vision reveal that this is eternal worship, the reality of heavenly worship as it always has been and always will be. Of course, the heavenly worship of John's vision, coming as it does after the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, does elevate the lamb who was slain in a way that is absent in Isaiah's vision, But even the atonement provided Isaiah was based upon the sinless servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The core and essence of heavenly worship in both cases is the same. For this reason, second, earthly human worship is not something new for us, unique to us, or initiated by us. Worship is perpetually taking place in heaven, When we worship, 
we are entering into something eternal. Third, we enter into this eternal worship, not of our own initiative or merit, but only at the invitation from God and on the basis of God's atoning work. In both eras, God called the sinner into his temple. They didn't seek him out or initiate the encounter. And in both eras, acceptance into God's presence was permitted only after the sinner's guilt was atoned for and by the means that God himself provided. Fourth, the theological pattern of heavenly worship in both visions reflects that initiating call of God and his atoning work that enables sinners to be in his presence. The pattern of revelation, adoration, confession, propitiation, instruction, dedication, and communion provides a contour to the worship of heaven that magnifies the true reality of eternal worship and the only means by which sinful humans are able to participate. Consequently then, fifth, worship is not us performing for God, but a reenactment of God's work for us. Everything about the eternal worship into which Isaiah and John enter is initiated by God, provided for by God, and shaped by his covenant relationship with his people. God is the primary actor. All of the actions of the worshipers are in response to God's work and actually a reenactment of God's covenantal work. Now, what's important to recognize about the relationship of heavenly worship to earthly worship, especially for we who are Christians this side of the cross, is what the author of Hebrews teaches at the end of chapter 12 of his book. The author says, You Christians have come to the reality, to the true worship of heaven itself, the worship of the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul describes this reality for Christians in Ephesians 2.6 when he states that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is seated in heaven, and since we Christians are in him, we are there with him. And he tells us how just a few verses down in Ephesians 2.18. For through Christ... We have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father because in one spirit through Christ, we are actually there in the presence of God in heaven. This is why we praise the triune God. Each person of the triunity of God plays an active role in what makes worship in God's presence possible for Christians. This, of course, is the central message of the gospel. We sinners who were far off now have access to the presence of God in one spirit by grace through faith in the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. This reveals the essential connection between the gospel and the theologic of heavenly worship. Through Christ in the spirit, we have access to the presence of God. The goal of the gospel is to enable us to draw near to the presence of God in the heavenly temple where we are able to commune with him. In other words, we Christians no longer have to come to the shadows of Old Testament worship that represent heavenly worship. In and through Christ by the Spirit, we now come to the reality of the worship of heaven. 
But it's very important that we recognize that even though this is a very real reality, we must also recognize that it is not yet a physical reality. Our bodies are still here on earth while we really are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What this reveals is the important spiritual essence of our participation in the heavenly worship of God through Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have access in one spirit. The spirit of God is the agent who makes this possible because it is a spiritual reality. The church is God's temple, the place of his dwelling. But this temple is not a physical location or a literal building. It's a spiritual reality into which we enter as Christians. The problem is that physical human beings naturally tend toward defining the essence of our communion with God in physical terms. That's one reason Christians have often gravitated towards the external forms of Old Testament worship, for example. They feel more real. This was one big problem with how worship developed during the Middle Ages. And this is why Christians often gravitate towards an experiential focus in worship where we define the presence of God in physical, sensual terms. We know that the Bible teaches that we are seated in the heavens with Christ. We know that we are God's temple. We know that we have access to the presence of God through Christ in the Spirit. But we want physical proof of these spiritual realities. We want to be able to feel God's presence. We want to tangibly experience communion with God. And so when we're asked the question, how do you know that you've worshipped? We want to be able to say something like, I felt God or I experienced his presence. But here's what we need to remember. While we truly are in God's presence through Christ, it is in the spirit. It is not yet a physical reality. It will one day be a physical reality. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears bodily, then you also will appear bodily with him in glory. But that time has not yet come. We are already there spiritually, but not yet bodily. This is why faith is necessary for communion with God in this already not yet relationship between worship presently and the worship of heaven. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Faith is the means by which we are able to draw near to communion with God through Christ in the heavenly temple, though we don't yet experience that communion in physical ways. The author of Hebrews, of course, defines faith in chapter 11 as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says in verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The great faith chapter of Hebrews highlights even Old Testament saints who exhibited true faith by believing in the true form of spiritual realities that they could not perceive with their physical senses. For example, Noah obeyed God's instructions even though what he was warned of was yet unseen. Abraham, too, obeyed God even though he did not know where he was going. 
Instead, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, that heavenly kingdom described in Hebrews 12. Joseph rested in confidence in a future exodus for the Hebrew people, even though he did not experience it himself. Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Even Jesus himself is set up in chapter 12 as an example of one who endured the cross because he was looking forward to the heavenly joy that was set before him. In each of these demonstrations of faith, God's true worshipers did not rely on what they could see or touch. In fact, they never in this life experienced the fulfillment of what they had been promised. Instead, as chapter 11 verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They desired a better country, not a physical one, but a heavenly one. They didn't rely on their physical senses, but on the only sense that can perceive the spiritual, faith. We need faith as we draw near to communion with God, Because even though we have access to the presence of God in the real temple of heaven, we can't see it, we can't see God or feel God or experience God with any of our physical senses. Our communion with God is at its essence spiritual. And so we come with assurance and conviction that when we draw near through Christ, we are actually in the presence of God in heaven, even though we have no tangible physical proof. And when we're asked the question, how do you know you've worshipped? We ought to answer, I know I've worshipped because I drew near to God through Christ with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Worship now is a spiritual reality of heavenly worship meant to form us to live now in light of that true form of reality. Worship now should embody the theological pattern of the true worship of heaven. From creation to consummation, the corporate worship of God's people is a memorial, a reenactment of the theological pattern of the true worship of heaven. God's call for his people to commune with him through the sacrifice of atonement that he has provided, listening to his word, responding with praise and obedience, and culminating with a beautiful picture of perfect communion with God in the form of a feast. This reenactment in a corporate worship service of God's work for us is what will progressively form us into that theological pattern of heavenly worship. This is why historic worship services, intentionally structured on the basis of this theological pattern, have always followed a standard order. Worship begins with God's call for his people to worship him, followed by adoration and praise. They then confess their sins to him and receive assurance of pardon in Christ. They thank him for their salvation, they hear his word preached, and they respond with dedication. And the climax of all historic Christian worship has always been an expression of communion with God through celebrating the Lord's table. To eat at Christ's table is the most powerful expression that Christians are accepted by him, memorially reenacting Christ's death until he comes again. 
Worship now that is shaped by the true spiritual realities of heavenly worship is what God has designed to sanctify us to live by faith in light of those realities. By enacting what we are in Christ, Christian worshipers become what we are. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Thank you.